Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast, insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners, a podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to the Dynasty Powering Independence Podcast. This is Ed Friedman. I'm your host for today's podcast entitled Legal Compliance and Freedom Part 2. This is a follow-on to our Legal and Compliance and Freedom Part 1 episode, and one might not necessarily think that there was enough content for a Part 1 and a Part 2, but please rest assured that there is. Joining us again on Part 2 are our panelists, Sharon Ash, Chief Litigation Counsel at Hamburger Law Firm, Lee Emery, Chief Compliance Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners, Michael Henley, Founder and CEO of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth, and Allison Brooks, COO and co-founder of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth. So let's jump right in uh, and talk about uh, our regulators, both FINRA and uh, SEC. Oh, well, I certainly uh, pray that the firms avoid that to the extent possible, (laughs) unless the revenue justifies it. But um, I think, you know, then we're back to being beholden to some of these more prescriptive and restrictive rules that FINRA has in place versus the SEC side of the house. And of course, now they've got to think about, uh, as a result of that, talk about the lowest common denominator, right? Now you've got to look at the two regulators in that sort of, um, with that eye and saying to yourself, well, for example, big one that comes up all the time, gifts and entertainment, right? FINRA's got a very specific limitation. The SEC says, you know, let's be reasonable. You're a fiduciary. Let's not systemically disadvantage one set of clients over another. Those are very different thresholds. But if you're beholden to both regulators, now you've got to think about the lowest common denominator. So, um, you know, we do have firms that that do that. We've also got firms that go sort of the middle of the road option where they do have uh, registered representatives that are you know, in their individual capacity are registered with an unaffiliated broker dealer. And so now there's some FINRA, uh, you know, sort of permeation of the REA business, but not entirely. So that's sort of the middle of the road option. I would say more of our network advisors follow for this reason. They're trying to keep a little bit of a separation right. of church and state. So, so Sharon, to, to Lee's point, right, we saw a few years ago, maybe three years ago or four years ago, this whole um, uprising around this concept of the DOL rules, right? And everybody was starting to make changes relative to that. And it turns out the DOL rules kind of go by the wayside. And now we're hearing about Reg BI. Um, talk about from a regulatory standpoint with Reg BI coming in uh, potentially and the position of the regulators to Lee's point, kind of finding or trying to find that middle ground um, between FINRA and SEC and suitability standard, the old suitability standard and, and fiduciary standard. Where do you see us today and where do you think we're going? Well, we're in a state of confusion, I think. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's the one thing that seems to be consistent is that there is a lack of understanding of these different standards um, and the different hats that one person can wear in dealing with a single client. Um, We see it in a, a number of different contexts, but the outcome is the same, which is this level of confusion as to what's the duty of the person that uh, an individual client uh, or an institutional client might be working with. So I think that um, what we have seen is a patchwork develop 
where because our federal regulators have failed to act, you've seen states that have stepped in with their own mm -hmm. legislation. And that just, I think, proliferates the problem because now you can have a, a client sitting in one state where the law is different than another state, just based upon the residency of the client. So I think, where are we? Confusion. Um, where do we continue to go? It seems still pretty foggy. Um, and in terms of trying to streamline that and bring some clarity to it, if you can, as Lee suggested, pick pick a regulator, right? And and <laughs> um, that might be one way to do it. Uh, but I think that being really clear with your clients, it'll certainly come down to things like disclosure, that it's going to be more and more important as this landscape continues to, to I think, become more complex than it does clear, that you're going to need to be really clear with your client base as to what your duty is and the role that you're playing so that at least that's an issue that between an individual firm and its client base that you have more clarity than you read about in the trades. And what's interesting in the wirehouse world, in our prior world, it's been fascinating the last five years, the involvement, if you will, of the kind of the regulatory industry, because I think in an effort to make clients and families more aware, I think clients are more confused than ever with getting overloaded with huge books of information on program, you know, all the details, et cetera. They don't know what to do with it. The fee schedule inside those huge books of information is not what they're paying. It's actually the retail fee schedule. So it creates more confusion, it seems, than anything else. I was in a, a hearing, uh, an enforcement hearing, not too long ago and questioned a um, a regulator. I'm not going to say what regulator, <laughs> what regulatory <laughs> body it was, um, but this investigator was on the stand and I asked him a question about the standard of care and he gave me a dead wrong answer. Mm. Well, that's comforting. That's comforting. <laughs> so that's a regulatory investigator. Now you want to go out and ask ask your client, you know, on Main Street, the difference. And mm. it's it's really a very challenging area. So I think what I'm taking away from this part of the discussion is no matter what state you operate your RIA in, we're all operating in a state of confusion. Indeed. So I think that's that's the takeaway. I think that's and, fair. <laughs> and just to remind our panelists, as well as all of our listeners, the title of this podcast is Legal, Com Legal Compliance and Freedom. So let's touch on the freedom um, for a second. Michael and Allie, um, you know, you've made the reference, as others have on this podcast, about the big firms, the wirehouses, the banks, uh, and the like, managing their compliance programs to the lowest common denominator because that's what they have to worry about. That's the one that's going to get them uh, in trouble. And folks like yourself that are breaking away and establishing your own firm represent really, I think, some of the best and some of the top advisors um, in the industry. What have you experienced from a freedom perspective that otherwise you would not have either had the ability to do at your old firm? I won't mention it. It's been mentioned enough. Or um, if you did do it, you'd have to jump through crazy hoops to get something done. Uh, happy to comment, Ed. So, uh, so let me, I don't know where to start with this one, but let me start with, okay, so we'll start with something simple, kids' accounts. So we do a lot of family planning around funding Roth IRAs for the kids and grandkids for our clients. And in a wirehouse, you effectively have a certain minimum number of securities per account. So a five or 10 or 15, $20,000 Roth IRA, you know, we could buy, you know, VTI, the Vanguard Total Market Index, and it's 5,000 securities. Um, inside a wirehouse, we had to hold at least 10 securities. So we have to buy a variety of ETFs or index funds 
um, with only $10,000. It just didn't make kind of common sense um, justification there. That's one example. Another example, a turnover. We had a minimum number of trades inside a wirehouse. So if a client has a taxable account and they're in a top tax bracket and they're resident in New Jersey or Delaware, high income tax state, um, it doesn't often make sense to have a lot of turnover inside these accounts triggering capital gains, et cetera. Um, specifically, when we can do rebalancing inside the client's IRA or Roth IRA and get to the target asset allocation that way with no tax consequences, uh, we had this minimum number of trades. So we were forced to trade these accounts, even if the client's sitting on gains in every single position. So certain things like that, I would say, didn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Um, when I mentioned the lovely uh, the word variances. Oh, quite a lot of variances. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much our constant at the wirehouses is, you know, you're always managing these variances, um, putting a lot of time into it. I think one of the bigger ones, the bigger problem that, that these wirehouses had is the inability to see the household as a whole, really. Um, so when we look at clients' assets, we look at, you know, not just one particular account. The client could have 20 accounts. So if they're a moderate investor, we're not saying every single account has to have a moderate allocation. We're saying as a whole, they're moderate. Um, you know, unfortunately, we were kind of managed where, well, if the trust account was considered to be one entity, retirement accounts another. And unfortunately, it's it's just, it's it's not realistic. Um, it's, you know, we look at everything as a complete whole, as you should. I would say from a marketing standpoint, Ed, that's been a huge breath of fresh air. Yeah. So we do a lot of seminars, Andy Freeman seminars, et cetera, client appreciation events a couple times a year. And it got to a point inside the wirehouse where we weren't able to create invitations any longer. We had to use the off-the-shelf invitations um, that the firm created that were not customized whatsoever to our audience or customized to our event. So it got to be nearly impossible to do seminars in an efficient manner. We almost had to dedicate an entire administrative partner. Their full-time job was effectively doing seminars because that's how long it took to prepare after the fact, getting reimbursed from the various you know partners, et cetera. Um, that was painful. Social media is a whole other topic. So inside a wirehouse, we effectively um, had off-the-shelf you know verbiage that we could post. You couldn't post your own content. So if we know that our clients are very tax-focused, for example, we couldn't post articles on the new tax law and what had changed. We were only able to use the off-the-shelf kind of pre-written materials that were that applied to a very broad audience. So not every single client has complex irrevocable trusts, et cetera. Um, so I would say from the social media standpoint, that's been very, very, very refreshing. And clients, quite frankly, are very responsive to it. I didn't expect the kind of engagement we have. Um, with you know, with Justin Barish and those guys from Dynasty, mm -hmm. it's been you know a huge game changer around client response. Right, we have actually a, bit, a pretty big presence on LinkedIn right now. Um, so every week we're putting out articles, and you know it kind of keeps us more in touch with our clients, and their clients actually know what we're doing. You know, every time we go to a training or, or any sort of event, I'm sure we'll post about this as well. Um, you know, it kind of just right. helps clients realize, oh, this is what their day to day is. This is how they're helping improve themselves. This is how they're becoming more involved in the community. It just, you know, it's this platform for us that we've never had before. And I would say even minor stuff, Ed, the office itself. You know, inside a wirehouse, they have CNBC playing 24/7 in the lobby. Clients walk in, they see the market's crashing 500 points. It's not a very re refreshing or... It's not a good way to start a meeting. It's not an encouraging <laughs> way to say, okay, you know, focus on the long-term, Mr. and Mrs. Client. Ignore the short-term volatility. Stay focused on your long-term plan. Um, focus on the destination, not the journey. Well, in our office, in our lobby, we have HDTV on. So clients come in and say, oh, and that clients, we've heard this probably a dozen times, we love that you have this on here. Yep. And then, you know, we don't have, we have on Seinfeld or something in our office. We don't have on the noise of the markets. Well, it's because you're... you're helping clients achieve a lifestyle, either today or in the future from a retirement perspective. And I think, you know, your point, Michael, is it's the destination, right? 
Um, so kind of keep them focused on it. And you don't need somebody banging, you know, on CNBC saying the, the, the sky is falling. And I think that the examples that the two of you have just given are the reason why we continue to see people leave, even with drawbridges coming up mm -hmm. and, you know, the handcuffs getting tighter, that people who recognize that they want to service their clients in a different way, they are not the lowest common denominator. They don't need to be managed like the lowest common denominator. Yeah. They're going to continue to leave and they're going to continue to find a way out to independence. And Lee, you work very closely with Brittany on a regular basis. Can you describe how Brittany manages all of the complexities of compliance? Well, Brittany is fantastic. By the way, I love that she's getting so many shout-outs. I, I hope that she's listening to this. Um, Brittany is great about keeping them in check. Um, but I think Brittany also has the right mindset, again, that you know, I, I absolutely despise that compliance is viewed generally as the business prevention unit. You know, I don't think it has to be that way. Um, I've really I've made a career out of not being a robot, as I think Sharon has as well, <laughs> you know, being very business friendly and saying, of course, there are bright lines here. Of course, there are restrictions. I mean, marketing is, is probably the best example. Absolutely, there are prohibitions on the RIA side. There are things you can and cannot do, things you can and cannot say. Um, but there's far more playroom than you have on the FINRA side of the house. And so I think that if you've got somebody in the seat like Brittany who understands where those bright lines are and can say with you know, a healthy amount of confidence, okay, this is the spectrum of risk. You know, I, I don't want to live in the most conservative lane because then I'm not going anywhere. I don't want to live in the, the highest risk lane because that's you know, way too much uh, risk for my business. But what's the healthy middle ground where the business is growing and flourishing, but it's being done in the right way? You know, my take on compliance is always never fails. And I'm, I'm going to bet that Sharon's going to laugh at this because I'm sure she gets this too. All the phone calls I get are, Lee, can I do this? And I say, no, 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 wait a minute. Tell me what you want to do and let's start there. Let's figure out how we get there. I really have not had to say no outright that many times in my career. The answer is usually, well, not like that, but what about like this? You know, I always like to start with the end goal and work backwards because especially in the independent space, nine times out of 10, we can get there. We just need to maybe take a little bit of a different path than you initially contemplated. And I would add to that, I think that um, being able to take that more um, magnified view, I'll call it, as to what the advisor is actually trying to accomplish means that you can often find a, a business-minded solution and compliance-minded solution that's going to get you there. And even for those advisors that choose to continue to be duly registered, they continue to have a, a FINRA presence because it makes sense for their business, that still you're not talking about being managed to that lowest common denominator. You can look at, I mean, let's take a really simple example, outside business activities. You can take a closer examination as to whether an outside business activity would really pose a conflict of interest, a true threat to your client base, um, and, and you may decide that you would approve one of your individual uh, uh, duly registered advisors being involved in an outside business activity where that might not have been approved inside of a wirehouse because now you're working with an independent broker-dealer that takes a different vantage point. Still deliberate, still within the confines of the rules, 
but we just don't have to manage everybody to that same lowest common denominator. I think it's a common sense approach. I think one of the things that we observed early on was it's a much more, when you explain kind of, okay, the RA world, the broker-dealer world, and kind of being independent, um, I think we said over and over again, oh, this makes sense. It actually makes rational sense. And you think about it, document X, Y, and Z, of course. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff, program rationale notes, and some of the stuff we, we were held to before just didn't make it. We'd spend hours documenting why to enroll a client's IRA into an advisory account. I mean, just for no reason, because the client's engaging us in this manner. Um, some of the other flexibility, I'll just mention one more thing, Ed, is around being able to charge a flat fee to engage us. Um, at, at, in our prior firm, a percentage-based asset fee was the only option. So we moved over probably our biggest new family year to date. Um, we, we took from our prior firm. Um, we charged them a flat fee to engage us, and they, that was a much better fit for them because they didn't want us to have to you know, constantly try to solicit them to move other assets over. So we said, what if we charge you a flat dollar a month fee? Whether you take out a mortgage or use assets from us, it's the same fee you pay us either way. We're going to do what's in your best you know, financial interest. Um, and a flat fee was able to accomplish that for certain clients. That's fabulous. I don't want to get carried away here on the freedom discussion, um, so I'm going to bring it back to the legal compliance and and kind of throw out first this question to you, Sharon. We've seen recently a lot of the big social media firms, Facebook, Amazon, all of those types of firms being subjected now to potentially very big um, fines, um, charges, if you will, litigation around client privacy and violations uh, along those lines. If you could touch a little bit on what client privacy means for our industry, what advisors need to be thinking about and worrying about, and then Lee, turn it over to you from a firm perspective, um, what they need to be doing. So the concerns about privacy and client data should start Regardless of where you sit, you should be thinking about those issues today. So if you're an advisor that's thinking about making a transition or you're a firm that's thinking about hiring someone to come into your established firm, client privacy, it's a big deal. It's probably the number one reason that there is litigation in connection with employment transitions. A lot of people will ask, um, what's the difference between these two folks that left Morgan Stanley and one firm gets sued and, and one firm doesn't? And it's not the size of the assets. It's not about how much of a spotlight is, is shining on them, although those can impact the level of aggression. It is often boiling down to the handling of client data in connection with employment transitions. Um, once a firm is up and running, you need to know who are your third-party partners that you are working with that have access to your client data and what protections do they have in place? What are the privacy protections that you can rely upon? Um, You need to ask the questions, how are they testing their systems? Are they doing regular testing to make sure that they are not subject to at least easy attack? If they have an episode where they are subject to attack, what are they doing? How do they react to it? And you should be paying attention to that because it's your data. And if you're working with a vendor, um, for example, that has an attack that does not close that door, doesn't do it effectively, doesn't communicate about what the issue is in a timely manner, you should be paying attention to that because at the end of the day, the client's going to come back to you 
and say, this is my data. So those are critically important areas that it's everything from before you even launch, how are you handling client data to day to day, making sure that your own systems and those of third parties are um, really as strong as they can be and learning from those breaches that you read about that perhaps didn't affect you directly. But talk to your vendors. Hey, did you read about that, that breach? Um, I won't mention the particular company, but did you read about their breach? What are you doing? What is your system like in that regard? So, Lee, how does a firm like Brandywine Oak deal with the vendor due diligence, to Sharon's point, to make sure on a, I think, a regular annual basis that, that they're doing all of those things that they need to protect client data? Yeah, I think due diligence have become sort of uh, dirty words, I think, in the in the industry because no one's really sure what that means. Uh, the truth is there's really no particularly prescribed way that is required of you. But I think, you know, what I am always advising is that at least, as Sharon said, initially when you engage with a vendor and at least annually thereafter, you're doing some kind of documented review of these pieces of their business, particularly around privacy, data security, cybersecurity. You know, send, we have, for example, at Dynasty sort of standard, you know, DDQs that are around due diligence questionnaires that are around uh, these topics where you'll send that out to the vendor and request that they fill it out. Ask them to send you their cybersecurity policies, their privacy notice, all of these various things that describe, as Sharon said, how they're protecting this data on your behalf and read through it. That's the critical thing. People get everything back and then say, thank you very much and put this in a file. No, take a read through it. Make sure you're not concerned that there are any gaps, like Sharon said. Uh, you know, make sure that you understand generally. You don't need to be a tech expert, but I think you need a tech expert at your disposal, right? Make sure you've got the right uh, third-party partner in place from a technology perspective to protect your firm. Think about what your cybersecurity policies and procedures are and how you're protecting data, as Sharon said. Um, you know, I think it's about diligencing third parties as well as yourself. Hold yourself to the same standard. The other thing that I think people often forget about, um, we're so focused now on cybersecurity and on data security. And listen, that's arguably any of our uh, biggest threat right now, right? We're all vulnerable in that way. But don't forget about the training of your employees. First of all, your employees are both your first line of defense and easily your greatest vulnerability. Um, I will say that, you know, in my day, for example, when I was at Blackstone, they used to do penetration testing and, and phishing attempts that were internal, that were purposeful. And then they would come out and actually report internally and say, you know, we had 10 people click on this. Are you kidding me? You work at Blackstone. You should know better, right? They, they sort of resorted to, you know, internal Obviously, it was a joke, but it's sort of internal public shaming, if you will. But listen, it worked. People started being much more diligent about what they were clicking on. So don't forget, it's not just about written policies or due diligence. It's also about your people. It needs to be part of the culture. The other thing that I'll say is that we have a lot of advisors in the network that share space, right? WeWorks and things like that, uh, Regis offices. Don't forget to think about your physical surroundings as it pertains to data and privacy, right? You are just as vulnerable to sharing a printer with someone and leaving somebody's social security number and client profile on a printer that you share with another business as you are to clicking on a link and giving away you know, access to your computer. So think about the little things. Lock your computer when you get up. Put things away. Have locked files. Lock your office. Don't share, you know, Wi-Fi if you can avoid it. Don't share printers if you can avoid it. You really have to think about your physical surroundings as well. So I really always say to our advisors, hold yourself to that same standard. And, of course, then conduct, you know, that third-party due diligence as well. 
And let's go one step further towards looking at your current practice and the habits that you're letting your staff develop Mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Um, We recently worked with um, a a firm that called us in what seemed to be a really simple ask. Um, We have somebody who's leaving, and they're they're a good lever. This is going to be really collaborative, um, and uh, we just need a separation agreement. And Lee, you said before, wait a minute, let's see, how did we get here? And let's start asking some questions. <laughs> so you start asking some questions. You say, gathering some information. All right, so I'm going to um, begin to put together an outline. But while I'm doing that, would you walk down the hall and go to the workstation for that advisor and open up the browser history and call me back in 30 minutes with what you find? Hmm. Don't open anything just tell me what you find in the history. And this good lever had, in the days leading up to resignation, used Dropbox, which was a firm-sanctioned tool, and had uploaded the firm's entire CRM to Dropbox. So well, are that... you saying you can't do that? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's the tip of the iceberg, but that was, it was a barn door that the firm opened by making this resource available. So understanding not just how you intend your firm and your tools to be used, but how can they be improperly used and testing yourself in a way for if this is used improperly, what's it going to expose our firm to? And there we had not just an employment issue, but we also had a now a privacy issue. Mm-hmm. And some of those clients whose data was taken, they were located in states where we had to notify law enforcement because that was the requirement where we had to notify the clients that their data had been taken. And I could tell you that Lever, he was all too happy to sign an affidavit that he had wiped his computer and returned all data um, and was hoping that that's where it would just stop. Mm -hmm. So challenge yourself to know how are you setting up your firm. I like the internal phishing email. We have to try that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you reference that, Michael, but we have seen firms that have had significant issues where a phishing email comes in, and it actually looks like it's coming from somebody that Mm -hmm. you know, and it looks like it's okay to click on something, and then you've got, you know, real issues. And I think also, uh, and I'd love to get everybody's thoughts around this, we've become a remote society, right? In the old days when I started, um, way back when, first off, there were no computers, it was just paper and and, uh, pencil, but not not a chisel. <clears throat> not a chisel. No. We had <laughs> we had just graduated from chisels after I went through training. Uh, after that whole fire inventing so, thing. Right. <laughs> exactly. And the wheel. The wheel was a big uh, improvement. We got to the office much faster. Um, but back then, everybody worked in the same office, and it was a controlled environment. And now you've got a lot of people working remotely, either on a firm issued laptop or one of their own, and not necessarily protecting about against everything else that's going on to that laptop. So how do we deal with that? You know, Michael and Allie, what, what are your thoughts inside of Brandywine Oak uh, on that? Absolutely. One of the things that's been, that's been very helpful is having on our laptops, we have a virtual desktop. And at first, we couldn't really appreciate this because on a, at a wirehouse, you get a firm-issued laptop. So basically, it's a, you know, an XYZ Morgan Stanley laptop. You return that when you resign. Um, In the independent world, the laptop is really your personal possession. And having a virtual desktop, effectively, none of the client documents, none of our applications, nothing is on the laptop itself. It's all held virtually, which I think has been very, very helpful. Um, 
I think a lot of it, too, is just having the right people at the firm. You have to have people at the firm that are intelligent and, and understand, you know, the ramifications of possibly losing data or, you know, leaving a laptop somewhere. Um, but like Michael said, you know, it, it's a laptop. It's, it doesn't really have the info on there. Um, but as long as people have a good head on their shoulders, they're conscious of, of what they're doing in and outside of the office, um, you know, I think we're in a good spot. Yeah, I think one of the things that we see quite often, Michael and Ali just nailed it, is the, is the cloud-based system. But in addition to that, if you do have anything going on with a physical device, again, I mean, I, I know I kind of keep saying this, but having the right partner, and in this case, an IT partner in your corner, is really critical because they can help you to very easily control to a certain extent. There's my little disclaimer there. Um, the portable devices that people are using, right? Simple example, Exchange Server allows you to wipe the device entirely of a you know an employee that you've terminated that has left, uh, not just pull your own data off of it, but actually wipe the device entirely. So, of course, to Ali's point, if somebody's backed that phone up and they might have saved something down they weren't supposed to, I mean, bad actors and, and people behaving in that way, that's that's its own issue. But, um, you know, to the extent possible, you can control these remote devices. You can force passwords. You can force lock screens. You can wipe devices remotely. So it's important to think about these things as you're building out not only your compliance infrastructure, but your technology infrastructure. Well, I think that's a whole topic maybe for another podcast mm. around this <laughs> idea of of cybersecurity because it is becoming a much, much bigger and important topic, not only inside the RA space, but from a client um, perspective. So Sharon, let me ask you, um, Michael made the reference before that when they launched Brandywine Oak, first is YF, but when they launched Brandywine Oak, it was a rather quick um, launch. And in order to do that, you know, we used to refer to it in the business as, you know, ripcord and jump, right, on, on kind of parachuting now into your new firm. In order to do that and to do it effectively, are there things that advisors should be thinking about in the planning phase that will help them more successfully launch, especially if they need to do it quickly? Sure. Well, I think that first is, is making that decision that they're going to investigate to begin with. Um, armed with information as a result of their due diligence efforts, looking at what are their options can be the single most important decision that they make because that's really what gets the ball rolling. Um, deciding on a destination or potential, maybe it's one or two uh, potential destinations, um, and sometimes it's deciding that I'm not quite ready to go independent on my own yet, but I'm going to join someone that's independent um, as an interim step. Understanding that at least what we've learned um, or perhaps had underscored for us over the past two years is that what exists now and the landscape that we work within may not be the landscape as it exists for the long term. And so I think that what some folks sitting at Morgan Stanley learned a couple of years ago, UBS, is that, hey, um, I really need to conduct myself as if I really want to have choice and control conduct myself as if I want to leave next Friday. Because if if any other additional firms were to withdraw from the protocol, they have 10 days notice that they will give. Theoretically. Well, we made a change there. So <laughs> right? now there is a change. We get, okay. we get notice twice a day um, as to changes on the protocol list. So um, you should have, absent some gamesmanship, you should have <laughs> 10 days notice these days. But think about when Morgan Stanley withdrew and UBS withdrew. Um, there was some gamesmanship there with the notice requirement. And so there were advisors who made decisions within 72 hours. Some of those 
advisors decided I'm going to stay because I have a contract with some carve outs and I'll be okay. Um, others decided that I really need to go because I need to have the protections of the protocol or I just don't want to take on that risk. Having 72 hours to make a decision, and we dealt with some of those teams who engaged us for the first time and said, I'm going to be leaving in, you know, kind of 15 minutes. What do I need to know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but others who had done the research and had developed their transition strategy so that they knew what does this look like what are the do's and don'ts? They could be ready at the drop of a hat to pull that ripcord if they needed to. And they had a choice. That's really what this comes down to. And think about that so many advisors who are leaving, you're leaving because you want more choice. So that's where the plan starts is just deciding that you're going to gather that information. Well, we engaged uh, market counsel on Dynasty, what, mid-February? Mm -hmm. And then we resigned end of July. So it was a pretty quick four and a half months um, in terms of you know moving. But I think to that point, Michael, um, and kind of in the context of Sharon's comments about being prepared, right, and planning, and going back to this fun topic of freedom and technology, as, as Lee keeps touching on, you had the ability now, as you were launching your firm, to choose technology platforms and providers that more closely aligned with what you wanted to achieve for your clients, as opposed to being, let's say, at Merrill Lynch, where you could only provide to your clients what they um, told you you could provide. Talk about your decision process, your planning process, not only to choose applications, but what, if any, difference it made in your business. Absolutely. So Dynasty was a great partner in, help, a partner in helping us vet the various technology providers. Um, we ended up landing on eMoney for our financial planning software, which has been a compelling game changer. So we're a planning-focused firm almost by nature. So having much more sophisticated planning tools around, for example, state income tax rates, inheritance tax rates, you know, state to state tax rates, um, being able to show clients, you know, on the fly or during meetings, what if scenarios around what if I buy that second house in Nantucket? What if I go ahead and I spend twelve thousand a month instead of eleven thousand a month? What if I gift, you know, to my to my kids and grandkids X amount every single year for life? How does that impact my wealth thirty years from now? Um, what if I move to Florida and become a Florida resident, you know, not a Delaware resident or whatever the case may be? So I would say clients broadly have been, that's probably the most significant reaction that they have is going from a meeting at a wirehouse where it's basically a slide deck, a piece of paper in front of them um, versus an on-screen, you know, live presentation on the fly, if you will. Um, yeah, it's giving them real answers to their questions that matter most to them and their families. I mean, it's it's legitimate outcomes. They know dollar, you know, to the down to the specific penny, what they would owe in taxes. You know, the benefits of doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's being their planner compelling. allows you to give outcomes to what matters. Bottom line, um, and to be honest, at a at a wirehouse, what I would say there is not every advisor is planning focused. So, for example, we are in the weeds, planning obsessed. Um, but for example, if a team doesn't necessarily get into the nitty gritty of planning, they can use a lighter planning software. And choosing a different technology provider, is in the, that cost is going to add to your bottom line. Where inside a wirehouse, you're forced to use the off-the-shelf tools, whether you do in-depth planning or not. Um, what we found at a wirehouse was we didn't use all the tools and resources available. So building your own RIA, you're able to customize every single technology solution to make sure it's absolutely applicable to your business. Yeah, and I think going back to Sharon's comment, you know, very early on in the podcast when she said she's waiting for that one cookie cutter transition, <laughs> that's always the same. No two wealth management firms, independent wealth management firms are the same. And I think to your point, Michael, the ability to choose the tools, resources, and products, if you will, that best meet your type of clients uh, and the types of clients that you want to attract to your firm 
is kind of this key component of, uh, of freedom. So this has been, as I promised at the beginning, a lively and interesting uh, discussion. And as we round up our podcast today, I want to turn to each and every one of you to either share one or two ideas, um, because we always look for the people that tune in to walk away with an idea or two, or kind of an interesting, it could be a nightmare story or a great success story uh, that you've seen in your career as it relates to legal compliance and freedom. So, Michael, I'm going to start with you. The biggest piece of advice that I would give absolutely to any of our former colleagues is um, speak to one of us. The, the most, the biggest advocate for going independent is another Merrill Lynch advisor who's done this already. That was the biggest advocate for us. Um, I'll never forget calling Ali a couple years ago and saying, what do you think about sitting down with so-and-so, an ex-Merrill advisor who left you know, for independence? Sure enough, we sat down with him. Next thing you know, we're talking a dynasty. It's pretty much a done deal. Um, so I would say the sooner you start, the better. Um, and I would say while Merrill is still in protocol, Take that very, very, very seriously. What I have found in speaking with other Merrill advisors is they, they take it for granted and say, it's not that big of a deal. Who cares? My clients will come with me. But not being able to solicit your clients after resigning is very, very, very difficult. Um, I don't think they fully appreciate that. So my advice to them when I speak to them, I speak to them all the time, um, is to go ahead and get a plan in place now because you never know, to Sharon's point, when they're going to exit. And if they do, you don't want to be you know, floundering as to what, you know, what to do next. So, Allie, what has Michael missed? Michael doesn't usually miss anything. Um, <laughs> what a good partner she is. <laughs> no, I mean, I, Best in the business. <laughs> I think, you know, the overall sentiment is you never want to be caught off guard in this industry. You have to you have to think of this business as it's your business. Even if you're in a wirehouse right now, it's yours and you always want it to be yours. Um, you don't want someone else being in charge of it and, and every single decision that's made for you and your clients. So, um, you know, we were able to team up with some amazing people that are sitting here in this room and it's you know it's an overwhelming process we're not going to sit here and sugarcoat anything but with with the right people in place it's it's doable and it's worth it you know completely worth it (laughs) lee any pearls of wisdom i guess my takeaway here would be and this is certainly my view uh but if you are you know let's say an ria with Know, half a billion under management, and your CCO is spending 100% of their time on compliance, you're doing it wrong. That That's my takeaway. Something's wrong. Uh, you're not leveraging your external resources properly or perhaps at all. You're not leveraging technology properly. There are so many ways to streamline this piece of your business. You just need the right person to help you do it. And that would be my takeaway. We, we don't have to be the business prevention unit, and this doesn't have to be a full-time job until much further into your life cycle. Great. And as I was always taught, you always give the attorney the last word. <laughs> so, so Especially Sharon. when it's Sharon Ash. <laughs> so talk about a good partner, boy. <laughs> so so um, I think that tidbits from everything we've talked about today, I think being prepared and doing your due diligence, talking to others who have left before you, those are all great tips. However, probably one of the most important things that I would tell people today is you can look around and do your due diligence, engage to see what a transition would look like, but it's imperative that you act as if you're staying for the rest of your career. That means that you have to understand that so long as you continue to be employed by, whether it be a wirehouse or another RIA that you're considering leaving, um, that you have a continuing duty of loyalty in most circumstances. That means that You're working every day. I call it when you're on the time and dime of your employer. 
you are working for their benefit and you need to conduct yourself in that way. It's also not the time to go to HR or your manager and say, hey, could I have a copy of everything I've signed <laughs> since the beginning of, of my time at the firm? And it's also not the time to go and sit your whole team down and say, here's what we're thinking about, or to go out to your clients and say, here's what we're thinking about. This is a, think of it as behind the scenes plan that you are investigating. We are not ready to go public with it. And one of the most critical mistakes that I see early on is even in those due diligence stages that individuals make mistakes talking to that team member that they're not really sure about whether that team member will come or not. Well, if they're not essential to a transition, if this transition is happening anyway, why would we let them into the tent? They don't need to know what's happening. Stay in control. How do you stay in control? Keep the facts and details to yourself. There will be a time to make an announcement. When that time comes, you'll have a strategy to make it. But until then, act as if you're staying for the rest of your career. Well, that's fabulous. I want to thank each and every one of you, not only for the incredible insights that you've brought, the enlightening discussion, and dare I say, making legal and compliance fun again. <laughs> um, I think it's been a great podcast, and I'd like it. to, <laughs> and I'd like to thank thank everybody who tuned in today and and downloaded the podcast. I hope you found uh, a great deal of value out of it as well. I want to thank our guests for their great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. And until then, remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream. <laughs>